Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 18, verse 18, to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 18, verse 18, to the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. So Paul remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at uh, Sancria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but they took, uh, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed uh, at Caesarea and, and uh, gone up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the, to the region Uh, of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are once again for your word, for the testimony of the amazing labors of the Apostle Paul and others as well, such as Apollos. And we ask you, God, that you might, by your word, bring to bear upon our souls the same convictions which you formed in their hearts in those days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been reading Acts as many of you have, uh, just beyond this, in fact, if you're following the McShane Reader in the new year and going through uh, up to this point and beyond in January, and at times we notice that Luke can be quite long-winded about a single event. Uh, but here we are reminded, and this isn't the only place he can cover an enormous amount of ground in a very short amount of space. As far as I can tell, You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think so. This is the most amount of ground covered in the least amount of verses in the entire book of Acts. Uh, There are likely two reasons for this. One being that Luke was not uh, with Paul in his journeys, nor was he with uh, Apollos in Ephesus. And so it seems likely that he was working off a very rough outline and yet The second reason, he wanted to fill in the details that got Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. And while his main and great focus and interest was in those two great cities where he spent so much time, Corinth and Ephesus, he did at least want to tell us a little bit of what happened in between his stay in these two cities. And we even see this included a brief stay 
in Ephesus, though it was not to last. And so this import, uh, this material is important in its own right, although briefly touched upon. The span of journeys here, uh, FF, according to F.F. Bruce, in just uh, two of the verses covers some 1,500 miles. So that gives you some sense of what we are considering. Uh, to put it in broader uh, in more general terms, we see the second missionary journey concluded and the third commenced at the end of chapter 18. And so let us consider these tremendous series of events and their significance. And we can divide the narrative under two main headings. We have uh, the journeys of Paul and then we have the ministry of Apollos. Uh, and I confess that my greater interest is with Apollos, uh, though uh, saying what I will about Paul, we will return to him at the end of the sermon as we draw some general lessons of application. So we begin uh, briefly, and briefly I think in, in uh, keeping with the spirit of Luke himself, admitted, admitting that my interest does not so much lie here as elsewhere, though a little bit of time uh, surely is warranted. We have Paul's journeys as the first point. Now the first thing we see is that he stayed a good while in Corinth, verse 18, and that... <coughs> Excuse me. And then he set sail for Syria with Priscilla and Aquila. Something interesting we read in verse 18, I'll return to it later on in the sermon, <coughs> is that Paul takes a vow. Now, in just a little while, we're going to read about another vow that he takes, and much more detail is given. Here, all we read is that, well, Priscilla and Aquila were with him and he had uh, his hair cut off for he had taken a vow. Well, what was the nature and the purpose of this vow? You see, Luke tells us almost nothing, although he is sure to tell us this. And, and at other times he is as well. Again, the significance of this I want to touch upon later, but let, let us just try to understand what happened here. It would seem that uh, the Apostle Paul, as a kind of uh, thanksgiving to God, some say this was a Nazarite vow, but I agree with F.F. F. Bruce that that doesn't really make sense. More likely that this was a vow of thanksgiving, that Paul, in response to Christ's assurance to him, that no one uh, would harm him in the city of Corinth and that he would be with him there. Uh, from that time on, he took a vow of thanksgiving and he grew his hair. He would not let a razor touch his head. Uh, but when it was time to leave, he ended his vow and he cut his hair. Uh, that, it seems to be the most, uh, the most straightforward reading of his vow. Now, how it was that Paul took a vow, as I say, we'll come to later. Next, he comes to Ephesus. Remember, it was his desire previously uh, to go into Ephesus, but he was prevented by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he went elsewhere and he was directed into Macedonia, to places such as Philippi, where we find him in the second missionary journey. He's, he's in Ephesus a short time. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and uh, very shortly the narrative will return to Ephesus, and we'll see what was happening there when Apollos arrived, and Priscilla and Aquila met them, or met him there. While in Ephesus, we read that he visits the synagogue, and 
he receives a surprisingly favorable reception. We're not used to reading this, but it reminds us a bit of Berea, doesn't it? This, uh, this happy reception. He reasoned with the Jews and they asked him to stay a longer time with them. Only he does not consent. But he does promise to return. How can we explain his eagerness to leave? Well, we read in verse 21, though it may be different in your Bibles, it may not be uh, as full because there is a section of this verse that is disputed based on a disputed text. But took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Well, I think the phrase, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, I think that's the part that you won't find in other versions. And that's what's disputed. And so in other versions, it would read something like he took leave of them saying, I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So the question is, if that text is not authentic, how can we explain his eagerness to leave? Obviously, we don't know. And what is supplied, if that text is authentic, certainly is a plausible explanation. He, at the very least, we know that he was eager to, to get on with things. It is even possible, some have suggested, although it doesn't quite fit with what I just said, that it had something in, uh, in some way to do with the vow that he took. At any rate, he was in a hurry to get on. But as I said, and as we read here, he promised to return, which is precisely what he does. And he ends up spending a great deal of time there. But for now, he briefly touches base and he moves on. And so he sets sail for Caesarea. And he visits the Jerusalem church. It just simply says the church, but it seems obvious that's what he did. And from there, uh, according to the narrative, and this was the way of speaking, he went down, although in reality he went up, he went north. But from Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. That was, you remember, his sending church. And from there he sent once again and sets out on his third missionary journey, beginning by revisiting established churches in Galatia and Phrygia, namely Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian, Antioch. And while in those places he sought to strengthen those churches in a way we can easily imagine, preaching and teaching and expounding, and from Sidian, Antioch, he sets out to Ephesus, which again, from Acts chapter 16, was his original intention there, but he was diverted. Not this time. He is able to go westward, into Ephesus. Well, that's all I have to say about Paul for now, simply retracing his steps. We turn next to Apollos as a second point, which is my primary interest and focus in this sermon. Apollos is introduced in verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, and so on. That's uh, very familiar uh, we read in chapter 18, verse 2, that in Corinth, Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, and so on. So here was a certain Jew, just like this other certain Jew, but this time from Alexandria. The first thing we read about him, I, 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 I notice all of these descriptors that Luke uh, points out. Uh, and immediately, in every case, I think of what Paul had said about his own ministry in Corinth 
And you'll need to remember that Apollos had ministry in Corinth and that Paul reflects upon uh, their ministry in First Corinthians. And so you, you may notice in what I say about Apollos that and, and I'll be explicit at times. I have what Paul says in First Corinthians in mind. Now, it's very interesting with that in the background to notice that the first thing we read about him was that he was an eloquent man. And I find myself thinking, uh, was that perhaps in contrast to Paul? who admitted, perhaps intentionally, perhaps not, but that he lacked in eloquence. Again, whether that was a matter of policy or, or simply a fact, uh, we cannot be sure. But of Apollos, it is said that he had eloquence. He was an eloquent man. More important to the cause of Christ, he was mighty in the scriptures, having no doubt learned them for some time in Alexandria. And it was this man, Apollos, so full of scripture in his heart and so able to speak beautifully and eloquently of them who came to Ephesus after Paul had left. And so we see how the narrative returns to Ephesus, even as I said it would. What we read in verse 24 to the end of the chapter has uh, the kind of feel. Meanwhile, in Ephesus. Here, Paul is journeying from Corinth through Ephesus uh, down to Judea and then and then back up towards Ephesus. And the sense is in the time, the period of time that he left, things were occurring there in Ephesus. Sometime between Paul's departure and his return. Now, we read of Apollos that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord as a kind of disciple of John. What we read is that he had been baptized with the baptism of John. And he was like John able, you think of the preaching of John in the Gospels, he was able to point to the coming of Christ from the scriptures. John the Baptist was a mighty preacher of Jesus Christ, of the coming Lord. Only unlike John, Apollos now was able to point to the fact that he had come. He was aware, unlike John, that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, he wasn't like John. Do you remember how it goes in the gospel? John was asking of Christ, are you the one or should we look for another? Even having beheld Christ and having baptized him, he went through a period of doubt and uncertainty. No, Apollos now was able, unlike John, to speak and teach accurately from the scriptures the things of the Lord concerning Jesus Christ without any wavering or any doubt that the man Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. And he was doing this in the synagogue even as Paul had done before, preaching mightily, preaching eloquently, preaching capably to the Jews. Even as John had done, only I'm saying more complete. Uh, the picture was more complete now in his day. Well, notice also about him, and there's so many descriptors about this man, more than a mere human eloquence, which he no doubt had. And that is, let me be clear, a valuable gift in the kingdom of God, though it isn't the greatest gift by any means. In addition to that was a spiritual fervor. He was fervent in spirit. Soon we'll see the Apostle Paul speaking of something like that when he says in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. It's the same thing that uh, that the, that Luke says here. 
he doesn't just mean the same uh, or something similar to, to uh, this natural capacity. Well, he was an eloquent man. He was also an earnest man. That's what I'm saying. Eloquence is a natural gift, but this was something beyond a natural gift. It wasn't just that he was an earnest man. He was an earnest man, but there was something even beyond that. What he's speaking of is the kind of thing that, well, we saw in John and we saw in Jesus. When people heard Jesus, they said, you know, there's an authority to this. There is an unction to what he is saying from God himself. Obviously, that was true in the case of Jesus because he was God, because he is God. But how is it that a man could ever become fervent in spirit? Except as he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he was able to to preach with this spiritual unction because he was fervent in spirit. Luke is here speaking of not a natural gift, but a spiritual gift. He's referring to the kind of power and boldness. That does not depend upon uh, human reason or human eloquence or human learning that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians. No, this was something different. The power and the boldness that was found in the preaching of the apostles. Which Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I did not come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know Uh, uh, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's it. The demonstration of the spirit and of power. Well, maybe you could say that Apollos, he did come in the demonstration as well of human learning and eloquence. But in addition to that, And especially noteworthy was the demonstration in the spirit of power, spiritual fervor, fervent in spirit. And yet for all of that, Luke says there was this deficiency, which we might have guessed when he said earlier on, he he had been baptized only in the baptism of John. Surely, even though he had a clearer and a more complete picture than John, it wasn't totally complete. And no, it wasn't, Luke says. As a disciple of John, one who only knew his baptism, what he said was accurate as far as it went. What he said was powerful and convicting and full of uh, the spirit and uh, the demonstration of the spirit and of power. It was powerful stuff. But we see how Priscilla and Aquila were able to take him aside and uh, having listened to his preaching And explain the things of which he spoke more accurately. And you notice the turn of phrase there. He spoke accurately. What he said was right as far as it went. But here they were able to instruct him having uh, learned of Paul the way of the Lord and the things of the Lord more accurately. It wasn't that his knowledge was false. It just was deficient. And if you think of yourself and if you think of myself, surely you can say that's often the case, isn't it? Well, that leads me to make these two observations about the preacher and the Christian who are always learning, always. So let's not be too hard on Apollos here. Let's notice something that is true of us all. First thing I would say, uh, quoting F.F. Bruce. Priscilla and Aquila listened to Apollos when he began to expound the scriptures there and were greatly impressed by the learning and skill which he devoted to the the defense of the gospel. No one else in their experience came so near their friend Paul in his in this ability. As they listened, they became aware of some gaps in his knowledge, accurate as it was. So they took him home and set forth the way of God to him more accurately. 
And a little later on, Bruce says, Priscilla and Aquila's procedure was admirable. How much better it is to give some uh, to give such private help to a teacher whose understanding of a subject is deficient than to correct or denounce him publicly. That's a very helpful line. In fact, you'll find it in other commentaries. How admirable, how much better it is when the preacher, you see, it's not just that the preacher is an error. He wasn't an error. He often is saying uh, the, the things, he's saying things accurately, but, but well, it, it, it might perhaps be more accurate if you said this, you see, it occurs to you. Perhaps you understand the subject better. Perhaps you're able to help him, but are you helping him if you denounce him to others or publicly? No. Uh, let Priscilla and Aquila be a model to you. Take the preacher aside. Help him privately. There is the path of meekness. You see, it's not that they didn't say anything. That's not meekness. It's the way they said it. It's the setting in which they did so. They were seeking truly to help their brother. But the second is, with respect to the man himself, or, with, or simply with respect to ourselves as individual individuals, uh, I would say... That unction does not preclude learning. That is to say, a man might be full of gifts. He might be full of the Holy Spirit. He might be a powerful preacher. And yet he still might have much to learn. You see, these two things go hand in hand. It isn't as though, well, he's so full of the Spirit. This is often the mistake that the charismatic church makes. A man is so full of the Spirit, he doesn't need to learn of others. That isn't what we see in the Bible. Here is a man who was evidently gifted as a preacher. In every conceivable way. And yet still he needed to be instructed more accurate in the ways of the Lord. You you, you see the point that I am making. uh, We could even say it like this. That even if you are well trained in the scriptures. I was talking about gifts a moment ago. Now I'm saying you're someone who has learned uh, a great deal of the Bible. You're full of the Bible. Even then. Your brother may have something to tell you that might benefit you. There isn't a single Christian who cannot possibly benefit from the counsel and the teaching of another Christian. That's part of the portrait that Luke is painting here so helpfully to us. Even the men who were most anointed with the Holy Spirit and most capable in their preaching of the gospel still needed the help of the Priscilla's and the Aquila's. And that is true of me and that is true of you as well. Isn't that a helpful way to look at it? We are never so mature and so advanced and so full of the Holy Spirit that there isn't something more to learn. We are always students. We're always disciples. We might always be helped by uh, something our brother and our sister has to say to us. And if you have this strong conviction that, well, I have something to tell the preacher, I have something to tell my brother, then I say, tell him, tell him. There's no telling how much you might help him. There's no telling how much the church might benefit as a result. You know what I'm not saying. I doubt I even need to say it, but I'll say it anyways. I'm not giving you license constantly to take the preacher aside and tell him what he should have said. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that there are times where you ought to do it. There are times where you have something to tell me or another Christian that that would help me immensely. And 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 shame on you if you don't tell me and shame on you if you don't tell your brother. A, A pastor of mine was recently reflecting. He's a bit younger than me. He's been a minister about 10 years. And he says, you know, my my greatest regret are not the things that I said, but the things I didn't say. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. Look how much Apollos was helped 
by the help of Priscilla and Aquila in their meek and quiet help in their home. Well, we're not surprised to see what happens next as a result of that. His desire to go to Achaia at the end of the narrative, that's Apollos, and how he did so, where he eventually ended up in Corinth, and he was used of the Lord there, as Paul acknowledges in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord uh, gave to each one, I plant as Apollos watered. Now, what he's saying there, and you know the next line, but the Lord gives the growth, and I will come back to that. But what Paul, the picture that Paul is painting there is that I had labored initially in Corinth, and, uh, and, and, and even as he did in Ephesus, uh, Apollos followed him into Ephesus, and then Paul, uh, uh, Apollos rather later followed him into Corinth. It was Paul who initially labored in Corinth and established the church there, and Apollos came a little later on. Paul Plantus, Apollos watered. His ministry was very valuable there. Again, as Paul acknowledges, both Paul and Apollos were used of the Lord. How foolish, as an aside, Paul is saying, how foolish then that the Corinthian church would be divided into factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Don't you see, the Lord was using both men in different ways. You can understand, by the way, how easy it was to say, and Paul spent so much time defending his preaching and his ministry there, because really there was an Apollos faction. They were saying, I like Apollos, not so much Paul. He's not as good with words. Apollos, now that's a real preacher, you see. That's what was happening there. That happens all the time in churches. I really prefer that preacher, not this preacher. Paul was saying, what are you talking about? Don't you see God was using both of these men in different ways. But what we see as he comes there, is that strong as the language was, and it was strong earlier on. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit. Luke was using powerful language. The language is stronger to describe his ministry in Corinth. When he desired to cross Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. The unmistakable impression we get is that this mighty speaker, full of the scriptures and of the spirit, was made mightier still. How? By the help of Priscilla and Aquila, by the encouragement that he received in their home and that just goes to show let me say again how much the preacher depends upon the people in his work so often what they were able to do for him is never known except in heaven whether it's uh, a word of encouragement or a prayer or uh, help in his understanding of the scripture this is one of the rare instances where uh, such an act is published In the scriptures and in history, very often the opposite is true. The quiet work of the of the of the member in in encouraging the minister in his work, in speeding him on in his work in strengthening him. It's never known except in heaven. At times, of course, you will read of this in scripture and in the biographies. Again, it comes in many ways, whether through encouragement, whether through prayer uh, or uh, in, in helping the pastor and his understanding. But again, the sense here is that Apollos was sped on by the help of these two Christians. But as we come now to the final point, let us notice some lessons that we learned from the text that we've been learning lessons already, haven't we? But in addition to what we've already learned, let us notice these four lessons. 
The first thing we notice, going back to Paul, as I said we would, is the untiring labors of the Apostle Paul. When we read uh, this condensed narrative, we realize, or we ought to realize, that he's doing a great deal. He is a man who was uh, full of a blazing zeal for Jesus Christ. You see, uh, I said this earlier in Athens, he might have taken a vacation there. He might have done a bit of sightseeing while he waited for his friends. But there was no way to quench the zeal which he had. When we read of the untiring labors of the Apostle Paul, this is the kind of thing, well, this is the stuff of biography, Christian biography. It is apt to amaze and to inspire us and to challenge and convict us. But what I especially notice when I look at the Apostle Paul and I think of his blazing zeal. Now, how would I explain that? What would I describe as his focus? Of course, we could speak of his focus in preaching the gospel. But let me try to be more practical than that. What was the grand project that he was endeavoring to achieve and to build? And and it's really obvious, isn't it? His great and burning zeal was for the church. He was a man whose utmost concern was for the church. Whenever he preached, he sought to establish churches. And then when he would leave those churches, he had a concern to return to those churches and to strengthen them. And having left them again, he would write them letters, as we've seen in so many cases. That's what we have in the New Testament. Paul was a man who was absorbed with the church. As he was a workman or a laborer seeking the approval that comes from God, he was laboring to build the church, even as he had been commissioned. Do you understand that what... The Apostle Paul told Timothy he himself uh, firmly believed and practiced himself. And I often think of this myself. You know, the preacher is someone uh, not unlike yourself. The preacher is someone, and Paul would be the same. So was Timothy. We have a great many interests. The church isn't the only one. But when it comes to our message and when it comes to our ministry, we are called to have a singular focus. This is what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter two, verse one, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must uh, must be first to partake in the crops. Consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. It's especially what he says. In verses 3 and 4, endure, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the, the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. What's he saying? He's saying give yourself fully to the task at hand. Throw yourself into the work. You see, I, speaking of Paul in particular, we, we have to understand uh, that mighty as Apollos was, I think it's fair to say Paul was mightier, at least in, in his thinking. Paul was, like Luther in his own day, Paul was the greatest mind of his age. And how easily he might have employed his great mind to engage in other subjects. And we even get a sense that he did that. You know, whatever Paul, uh, in his earlier life as a Jew, whatever Paul did, he did with all of his might. And with a singular zeal, but now that he put his hand to the plow, he went forward and he didn't look back as a churchman, as a pastor. Uh, 
How easily he might have employed his great mind to engage in other things, and yet he did not. He did not write great tracts on politics or on economics. He engaged himself fully in the work of the church. Calvin puts this well in his institutes when he says, let me find the place. He says, here we have a clear account of the ecclesiastical power which is conferred on pastors of the church, whatever titles they may bear, bear, that is, by the word of God, whose stewards they have become. Let them boldly dare to do all and compel all this world's glory, grandeur and power to obey and submit to the divine majesty. Through this same word, let them have command over everyone. Let them build up Christ's house and subvert Satan's kingdom. Let them feed the sheep and kill the wolves. Guide by their instruction and exhort those who are teachable and constrain and punish the rebellious and the the, uh, uh, obdurate. Let them bind and loose, thunder and cast their bolts, but all by the word of God. That's the description of the office of the minister. That's what you find in Paul. That's what you find him commending Timothy to do. Uh, Another place we might look is, uh, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul says of himself, let a man consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. The second lesson we see is that As much as uh, Paul, as much as the work depended on Paul in one case or Apollos in another, we could also say that many hands make for short work, relatively speaking. There was much to do, but thank God there were many helpers. And that's always the case, isn't it? The kingdom of God or any individual church never depends solely on one man. But what we see are the labors of many Christians in many places. For all that Paul was doing, he wasn't the only one. Many others joined him in the work. Of this he was deeply conscious As he often remarks in his letters, don't pass too quickly over his greetings and his thanksgivings to his other brothers in other places. What's he doing? He's saying, here's my theology of the church. Don't you see? It depends on others. Even the apostle himself had to recognize how uh, indebted he was to other Christians. It doesn't depend upon me, he's saying. In a sense, it doesn't depend upon them either, does it? Let us labor along with Paul to strengthen the church, to help each other as much as we can, but to realize as he did. And again, as he said in 1 Corinthians, none of it depends upon us. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the increase, so that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I am nothing. He is all. I must increase, decrease. He must increase. Uh, didn't John say something like that? The third lesson is that there are important, though difficult, uh, subjects which are confronted, which, uh, with which we are confronted in this text, namely Christian liberty and of vows, both of which are covered in our confession. And I think if I hadn't had so much to say already, I might have read a bit of the confession to you tonight, though I don't think we have time for that. I'll just simply give you a sense of what it says. Let me put it like this. It seems to me, and I'm including myself in this, that both subjects, that is Christian liberty and vows, were more important to the faith of Paul and those in the New Testament age 
as well as those who wrote the confession than they are to us. The question is, how are we to handle them? Why are we always so stunned every time we see something like Paul took a vow? Why, why do we need to, 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 to explain it? Well, let us see first that we have on the subject of Christian liberty. We have a real liberty in Christ. Each, each of us enjoys it by virtue of the new covenant. One which was given to us not to suit and please ourselves, but for the benefit of others. Use your freedom, Paul says. You've you've been set free, Galatians chapter 5. Only use it not to please yourself, but to serve your brother. And that's what we see Paul always embodying. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? Well, he was always seeking the welfare of others. He wasn't using his liberty as we are apt to do to please and to suit himself. That's the first thing. Second, let us see, and this needs to be said because Christians, well, they've been in confusion about this from the beginning. It is lawful under the new covenant for a Christian to take a vow. And you will find in the confession there's an entire chapter on oaths and vows. And if, as, I, as I said, if I had time, I would read it to you. But you could go home and read it for yourself and say, you know, it is lawful on certain occasions and at certain times for me to take a vow. When God has done something remarkable and extraordinary, I might, by way of thanksgiving, more strictly as the confession says, bind myself to religious duties as an expression of my thanksgiving. I don't have to do it. But I've decided to do it now that I've done it, now that I've taken my vow, I I keep my vow to God. Our our confession is very clear about this, and it's, it's obvious from the apostles' example. I say it again. It is lawful under the new covenant for a Christian to take a vow. It's very important that we understand what we are doing when we do it and why we would ever do this. Uh, and, and I wish I had more time to address that. We'll have to save that for another sermon. Let, let us see in the last place. That in this flurry of work and activity, which Luke condenses for us here, that God himself is at work. We can never lose sight of that. We can't make too much of man here. We have to come back to what Paul is saying. He's saying, what is Paul? What is, what is Apollos? We have to say the same thing. Here we're reading of Paul. We're reading of Apollos. And we can't help but admire them. And I can't help but commend their example to you. And yet at the same time, I'm constrained to say, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're mere clay, they're mere men, they're weakness, weak instruments in the hands of God. Come back to the beginning of Acts. Never lose sight of this. The account of the, Acts, uh, of the work of Jesus Christ, that which uh, he began to do. You see, he isn't finished working, Luke is saying. He's still working. And so some have said, well, you could call the Acts of the Apostles. Actually, you could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or what about this? The Acts of Christ. You see, in the Gospels, we only have an account of what he began to do. But do you realize he's still doing? He's still acting. And what is he doing? He's building his church, even as he had promised. He's scattering his seed abroad, even as he said he would. You see, that's what Paul realized when he reflected upon himself and Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, I, I just did a little bit of planting. Apollos did a bit of watering. But don't you understand it was God who supplied the growth. It was the Lord who was building the house. Otherwise, we were laboring in vain. But we weren't. Why weren't we laboring in vain? Why did we experience so much success? Why is it that any Christians at all in America in the 21st century would come to an evening service? The only answer is that God is still building his church. Don't you see that? And what an amazing and an encouraging thing to see. And so, well, let me say this and then and then I'll say what I was about to say. 
This was the secret to Paul's amazing zeal and his success. It wasn't anything that was found in him. Yes, he was a remarkable man, even as Apollos was. But what made Paul so such a blazing zeal in the kingdom of God was his awareness that it was the Lord who was building his house. And so he was not laboring in vain. But let us see the same is true today. The same exact truth is true today. It wasn't more true in Acts than it is now. You can't say, well, Christ is building his church then, but he's not building his church now. I just gave you an obvious instance of a way in which he is. Somehow or other, he is still generating interest in his word. And he is gathering people around it. That's the amazing thing. He's the same God. He's the same Lord. He's not forgotten about this. He hasn't forgotten about us. He's still working. He's still building. He's still keeping his promise to the church. It is true, let me say. It often appears otherwise. For his reign in heaven is hid, as Paul says. And what he says of the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17 remains true to this day. Namely, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you or in your midst. And here is the kingdom he is building. It is a spiritual heavenly one of which we are partakers if we are his. And how then is there any room for discouragement seeing that we possess what no man can take from us? The very kingdom of God, which is in your midst, it dwells within you. It's among, it's within. We are partakers, Jesus is saying, of of his heavenly kingdom. But if this is so, if we realize this, if we've embraced this idea, if it's captured us, let us be like Paul and Apollos, men who were eager and consumed. This is now suddenly we find the the great thing in our lives now that we're Christians. And yet let us see labor as we might. And whatever our labors may be, it is God who supplies the growth. Not only does that mean you see that he can do it without us, but it means that he will do it and that he is doing it. This is his constant work. Building his church through the labors of men like Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and even men and women like you and me. It's amazing to think, but it's really so. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 404.